HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. I've been hearing a lot about the merits of a plant-based diet lately, and it's a concept I've watched take hold over the past few years, even prompting the rise of plant-based meat companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. Most recently, I watched What the Health, a very pro-vegan Netflix documentary co-directed by Kip Anderson and Keegan Kuhn. The film argues that animal products are basically the root of all evil um, in terms of negative health outcomes. And personally speaking, I can tell you that in my own household, this prompted the unexpected arrival of four new vegan cookbooks, followed by a statement by my husband, purchaser of said books, that he was now going to be plant-based. We'll see about that. But anyways, it, it definitely piqued my interest and got me thinking about the many diet fads Americans have gone through over the past decades and whether some of the points in this film specifically had any merit. Joining me today to unpack these topics and discuss whether, um, you know, if we should be completely abstaining, abstaining from all animal products is Marian Nessel. Marian's the Pollitt Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University in the department she chaired from 1988 through 2003, and from which she retired just very recently in September of this year. She's also a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell and is the author of six prize-winning books, including, but not limited to, a fall, uh, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, What to Eat, Why Calories Count, From Science to Politics, and Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. Marian, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. <laughs> um, okay, so 
Before we get into the specifics of like the kind of current, what I think is the current diet obsession, I want to like look to the past and go over, you know, some of the the diets we've seen um, in recent U.S. history and what inspired them and whether or not, you know, each had its merit. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about, you know, one of the original diet obsessions over the past, you know, in the past couple of decades. Well, I, I was struck by your comment about how the focus on plant-based diets is recent. Um, and I guess it's recent because it's recent for you. If you're older, <laughs> it was recent a long time ago. And I first got interested in plant-based diets when Francis Moore Lappe published Diet for a Small Planet in the early 1970s, um, which is a book that sold millions of copies and is still in print and has been in 20 25 editions, and um, it's still very, very well known, but it was the first time I had seen anyone talking about the benefits not only to health but also to the environment of eating a largely, although not exclusively, plant-based diet. So it's been around for a long time, and it goes, these things go through cycles, but plant-based has, for as long as I can remember, been the kind of underlying advice about how to eat healthfully. I, I think that that is, you know, certainly absolutely true. I just, I think that for me, it's been um, in sort of talking to my friends and, and seeing like how maybe people around me, their diets have changed. And I think that there's been more emphasis on this concept, um, even though like we have known all along that it's good to eat more vegetables. But maybe, but maybe it's just not like sexy diet advice <laughs> that has really, um, you know, become as stayed as popular. Well, it's gotten much more extreme. So whereas vegetarianism used to be considered very odd um, in mainstream food culture, uh, now vegetarian is kind of common and people are talking about vegan, which is no animal products at all. Right. I mean, my own view based on you know what I know about nutrition is that some animal products are helpful in a diet. Um, not necessary. It's perfectly possible to eat healthfully on a vegan diet. It's just you have to be careful about a couple of things. Right. Um, so what um, So what were, I remember kind of the, like way back in, I think it was the 1990s when like low fat was a thing. And this is kind of, this is what I'm thinking about in terms of like fad diets in the, in the you know, recent American history. Can you talk a little bit about how that specifically took hold and kind of what happened, um, you know, what repercussions came from that specific dietary advice? Yeah, so we have to go back in history to the 1950s for this. Um, when, after the Second World War, there was a enormous increase in coronary heart disease. Um, I know about that because my father died of coronary heart disease when I was quite young. Um, and he was an obese smoker. So there was a lot of smoking. That was something that started during the Second World War where free cigarettes were given out to soldiers. Um, people, food was more available. People began to eat more. They put on weight. Heart disease rates were zooming. And various scientists started looking into it to try to figure out what it was 
that was causing this uh, enormous rise, and smoking was one thing, but the cigarette industry was doing a great job of um, casting doubt on the science linking cigarettes to heart disease. And so they focused on diet, and one of the focuses was dietary fat, um, and fat has, fat has twice the calories of either protein or carbohydrate. So if you eat fat, it makes you, if you eat a lot of fat, it makes you fat. It's got a lot of calories. It made sense. Mm-hmm. And in the, um, there was, in the 1970s, there was a big report that came out from the United States Senate on diet and chronic disease risk, and that advised eating less fat. And then in the late 1980s, there were two enormous federal reports. I know about them because I was the editor of one of them, um, the Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. And both of those reports said that dietary fat was the single most important public health issue around nutrition and that people should start eating lower-fat diets. And Mm -hmm. the philosophy behind that was that... I mean, first of all, they already knew by then that you couldn't tell people to eat less meat or dairy products because it was politically impossible to do that. Um, So they used euphemisms, and saturated fat is a euphemism for meat and dairy products that are its largest sources. Uh, so those reports were uh, cryptically advising people to eat more vegetables and to eat less meat and dairy products. Mm-hmm. But that got translated by the food industry into uh, what's known as the snack well phenomenon, mm-hmm. where snack well came out with these cookies that had no fat. They were zero fat, and they made up all the calories with sugar. And that started the food industry's big push to report place fat with sugar um, and keep the calories the same. People thought if they weren't eating fat, they could eat more. People started eating more um, and obesity went up. Heart disease was still going down. It's confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, But people didn't lose weight on low-fat diets. And there's been a recent kind of back and forth on saturated fats. Um, Hasn't there? Uh, In terms of like maybe they're not so bad for you. Um, what is... What? Well, again, I mean, uh, I think when you talk about saturated fat or sugar, you're talking about nutrients when or components of food. When people don't eat saturated fat, they eat foods containing saturated fat. And what's especially complicated about fat is that all food fats, without any exceptions whatsoever, are mixtures of saturated, unsaturated, and polyunsaturated fatty acids. Some just have more of one kind than another. The ones that have the most are animal products. Um, But they're mixed. So the the fact that they're mixed makes it really confusing. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can see, my reading of the evidence is that if you replace unsaturated or polyunsaturated fat with saturated fat, your risk of heart disease goes up. That has never changed. Um, so what happened when we started putting more, you know, what, what, how were they able, the industry able to replace uh, low, f- you know, make, make these products low fat or no fat? What well, they changed? added sugars. 
sugars and then and more carbohydrates or some other kind of thing or reformulated or put in additives but they were able to do that um, I, I don't I mean the Sackwell cookie phenomenon was just was really extraordinary as the trucks would drive up to deliver the cookies to supermarkets people would wait online <laughs> for Sackwells it reminded me a lot of the line I saw at a cookie dough place in my neighborhood where there were people lined up around the block to get into this cookie dough place to eat raw cookie dough. <laughs> I don't understand. Was that, was that recently? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that seems like a recent thing. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. <laughs> We've got some weird food, um, you know, from like a cultural perspective, um, f- like food fads, I would say, uh, right, happening right now, like raw cookie dough. Well, well, raw cookie dough must be a fad. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of the snack wolf phenomenon, same kind of thing. Um, so what about trans fats? We, uh, you know, this, I think, I always thought that trans fats were a direct, um, you know, kind of the rise of trans fats were something that came about as a result of this push to make things um, lower fat in general. Is that is that right? No, that's not quite right. They have a much, much longer history than that. Um, trans fats are formed when salad oils, you know, largely unsaturated salad oils are hydrogenated under pressure uh, with a catalyst. And this was, this happened in the late 1900s, the late 1800s it started, or the early 1900s, as a way to try to find a cheap fat that would replace butter. Butter was too expensive. Um, So this was a way to have a hard fat that because it makes it harder and makes it more satur makes it more saturated um, that would replace butter. So it was done commercially to try to make money off of um, a really poor quality fat. Um, and then when the heart disease rates started to go up and people were very concerned about reducing the amount of fat that people were eating and it was animal fats that were the trouble, um, there was a push to replace animal fats with, uh, with artificially hydrogenated fats because they weren't as heavily saturated or didn't appear to be. So that even if you were eating margarine, which is where the trans fats were, mm-hmm. uh, they, margarine was less saturated than butter. Um, I never liked margarine very much. I don't think it tastes very good. And mm-hmm. they, um, but it encouraged people to use margarine and to reduce the percentage of saturated fat or the proportion of saturated fat than they were consuming. And that went on until the late um, 1980s, early 1990s, when researchers began to show that trans fats were just as saturated as um, animal fats and, in fact, were saturated in such a way that they were even more harmful than animal fats. But that really wasn't discovered until the early 1990s. Okay. So, so around the same time as the reports that saturated fat, which was, we're getting at you know, animal protein, were very bad for your diet. Not animal protein, animal fat. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. 
this difference. So <laughs> the um, so so that so then that happened, and then trans fat became the thing that everybody needed to get rid of. And there's evidence that people who eat a lot of trans fat have higher risk for heart disease. I've always felt that that was because trans fats were put in really cheap junk foods, and that people who were eating a lot of trans fat were eating a lot of junk foods and didn't have very good diets generally. Um, and it's very hard to sort all that stuff out. But right. trans fats are bad, and it took a really long time for the FDA to get around to saying that they had to be labeled on food products. Once it did that in the early 2000s, then um, the, the manufacturers started taking the trans fats out of the junk food, and right. there's very little left. Right, but a huge fight. <laughs> It was well. It took years. Yeah, yeah. You know, it took years and years and years and years of petitioning by consumer groups, particularly Center for Science and the Public Interest, um, which actually had advocated for use of margarine um, in really? the nineteen eighties. Huh. Uh, through the 1980s and then changed in the 1990s to say, let's get rid of this. Yeah. Um, well, I, okay, so, you know, on that note, it does seem like there's been a lot of kind of back and forth and maybe disagreement within the dietetic community itself. Um, why do you think this is? And and are we, you know, is the field moving towards kind of a, a more uniform voice on most issues? Oh, I don't think anybody has a uniform voice about anything these days, Um, and certainly not in food and nutrition where the battles seem polarized and fierce. Um, you know, for, for me personally, with my knowledge of what my understanding of what nutrition was about, uh, I, I, I'm kind of driven by taste. And so I never proposed that people eat margarine. That seemed crazy to me. Why would you ask people to eat something that didn't taste good um, when all you had to do was just use less butter? but still use butter. I mean, and that's been my philosophy all along. So I have a tendency to think that dietary advice hasn't changed all that much. If you go back and look at the dietary advice that Ansel Keys wrote in a book in 1959, it looks just like today's dietary guidelines. I mean, it's the same kind of advice. It says eat more vegetables, don't eat too much sugar, don't eat too much fat. Right. Um, you know, go easy on high-fat animal products and don't eat too much. Yeah. Um, really good advice. Yeah. It's the same advice that's still being given. It's the details that change. And unchanging dietary advice is extremely boring. Uh, nobody's very interested in it. It's much more exciting and interesting to look at the way it's changing. The public, as a result, is demonstrably confused. Right. And I think a lot of the confusion comes from the focus on single nutrients, sugar, saturated fat, um, rather than on the foods that contain those um, the, that contain those nutrients. People don't eat. Nutrients, they eat foods containing those nutrients, and I don't think that advice that talks about sugar or fat is very helpful because most of the sugar in American diets doesn't come from what you put in your coffee. It comes from what's in desserts or other kinds of foods that you buy, and that's really what we should be talking about. 
Um, but that's politically impossible in the United States and has been for a very long time, um, since before the dietary guidelines started in 1980. Uh, it was politically impossible to say eat less meat or drink less soda. Because the industry... Because the industries lobby. Right. And lobby very effectively. Um, and also, they, um, they use the tobacco industry playbook, which and the number one rule in the playbook is you cast down on the science. So the first thing you want to do is make the science seem really confusing mm-hmm. um, and make people doubt the kinds of pronouncements that are being made about whether it's healthier to eat one kind of food or or another. So uh, cast out on the science. So they were really good at that. They did a terrific job. They really did, yeah. Of casting down on the science so that, you know, people say, everybody I know says, the science changes all the time. It's one first you say this, then you say that. And that's actually not what happened. The dietary guidelines have made pretty much the same kind of recommendations all the way through with very, very minor changes, but they're focused on nutrients, not foods. Right. Wasn't that a big kind of like sea change in and of itself, moving towards a more nutrient-based um, way of eating and recommendations versus food-based? I mean, certainly we saw that with, you know, just for example, with like the school food meal program in terms of, um, you know, what was Yeah, but you have served. to go back to the first dietary. I mean, dietary recommendations were never a problem until chronic diseases replaced deficiency diseases. Which was the main causes of death and disability. You know, we didn't have widespread heart disease, cancer, uh, or the kinds of cancers we have now, type 2 diabetes, things that are conditions that are related to obesity. Those didn't really start becoming widely prevalent until after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Up until that time, the Department of Agriculture told people to eat more of everything. Right. You know, meet a variety of foods, eat more, eat more, eat more, eat more. When the recommendations had to switch to eat less because people were putting on weight and were raising their blood cholesterol levels and having problems with diabetes and all of these conditions, um, when they started to say people should be eating more fruits and vegetables and less meat and dairy products and not eat so much, um, the industries really opposed that, and they opposed it by saying, you don't have the science behind it. Yeah. You know, and the trend in the dietary guidelines, which come out every five years by order of Congress, um, the trend there has been to insist that they be increasingly science-based, which is impossible because we can't do that science. Why not? Well, we don't have the skill. I mean, if you just, just give it a thought, if you want to know whether a particular food or a particular dietary pattern causes a particular condition, you have to take thousands of people and lock them up mm-hmm. in some kind of metabolic ward where they, where they can only eat what you feed them for 40 or 50 years. You can't do experiments <laughs> like that. 
No? It's impossible. <laughs> um, therefore, we're forced to do experiments that indicate or suggest mm-hmm. or associate but never prove. Right. The science is impossible, and that makes the whole situation really difficult, particularly when you've got an industry that makes a fortune off of people drinking sodas right, or eating one food or another. Um, and industries don't like it, the government telling the American public not to eat their products. Yep. Um, so that's definitely true. Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break um, um, and hear a word from our sponsor. But when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about the popularity of this um, of a plant-based diet and um, whether or not the arguments in the film, What the Health, have any merit. So stay tuned. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains, but when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Marian Nessel about the popular diet fads that have taken root in this country over the years, um, including the recent popularity of going plant-based. Um, okay, so I want to. So I, first, I want to ask, just really generally speaking, what is the difference between being a vegan and eating a plant-based diet? Oh, plant-based means that you include vegetables, fruits, or grains in pretty much every meal, that many of your big proportion of your calories come from plant-based foods, and that meat, dairy products, eggs, fish are in smaller proportion than they might be in the typical American diet. Vegan is no animal products at all. No eggs, no meat, no dairy, no fish, none of the above. Um, Strictly plant-based, which means vegetables, uh, fruits, grains, beans, that's it, seeds, Mm -hmm. that's it. Um, Now, you can make a perfectly healthy diet out of a vegan diet, and it will be, if it's done properly, will be healthier than the typical American diet. But so will a diet that's largely plant-based, um, right? But and not exclusively. And I think for many people, it's easier to eat some animal foods 
and many, many vegetarians, people who consider themselves to be vegetarians, do eat some animal products, whether it's dairy, fish, or eggs. They just don't eat beef right? Um, for the most part. And just for the record, that's what we do in my household, which I think I was super annoyed about this, like, this recent uh, statement that, you know, something's going to change. <laughs> Uh-huh. I'm like, well, that's what we do. We eat a lot of vegetables. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay out of your marriage if that's okay. <laughs> sure, no <laughs> but, problem. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, for me, a vegan diet would be quite difficult, and I don't, I can't think of any uh, scientific reason why it would be necessary. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, that that was my next question, because the film really argues that, you know, there is zero, zero need to eat any kind of animal products and that you can get like enough, um, you know, of your nutrients and certainly protein, they say specifically from eating a vegan oh, diet. Oh, that's absolutely true. Totally true. Yeah, I mean, vegan diets are healthy and healthier than many other kinds of diets. You have to watch out for vitamin B12, and you have to make sure that you eat a variety of foods. But there's uh, really, they're just fine. Um, I find them limiting, but that's a personal choice. Um, and I, and I, there are many, many reasons for people to choose vegan diets. Health is only one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, animal welfare is another. Um, the way that industrial animals are produced is kind of awful, and mm-hmm. they want to protest that. And also the effect of raising food animals on climate change is very real. So there are lots and lots of reasons for cutting down on eating animal products. Um, I like the Meatless Monday approach. Yeah. I mean, you could do Megan. Meatless Monday, Wednesday, Friday, if you want to. Meatless every other day, that would be fine. Um, but from an ecological standpoint, it's really helpful to have animals in the food supply because their uh, waste makes excellent manure for growing plants. Okay. Um, and so there's some ecological issues involved in that. Uh, but there's no reason why a vegan diet can't be really, really healthy. So we, I mean, I think that there's definitely, and we over consume meat in this country, but there is certainly an idea that we need to eat animal products um, to get well, enough protein. We do protein. for vitamin B12, but that's really the only reason. Protein is highly abundant. If you eat beans and seeds um, and vary the sources of vegetables, there's plenty of protein. Um, so what do... Sorry, I'm... Um I'm wondering now if we can talk a little bit about one of the other main points of the film, which was the, which I I think you know a lot about, which is um, sugar. And, you know, instead of like, they basically shift the, they downplay the role of sugar in health problems, and they really, really shift the focus to um, animal protein specifically as being the cause, not not just fat. Um, so they say like diabetes is not caused by eating a high carbohydrate diet or sugar and that carbohydrate consumption, I mean, these are two separate statements, obviously, but carbohydrate um, consumption is inversely related to diabetes. Thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, and I, I assume we're talking about type 2 diabetes and not type 1. Yes. Um, type 2, the single greatest risk factor for type 2 diabetes is overweight. Um, and it really doesn't matter where the overweight comes from. Um, if you 
are showing symptoms of type 2 diabetes, the best thing you can do to reduce those symptoms is to lose a few pounds. You don't even have to lose that many, but you have to lose a little bit of weight. Reverse your caloric intake and expenditure so that you're um, holding calorie intake and expenditure constant or spending a little more than you take in. Um, And that makes an enormous difference. For many, many people, the symptoms of type 2 diabetes go away if they lose a little weight um, and keep it off. So it doesn't really matter whether that weight comes from protein, fat, or carbohydrate. Weight is weight. So there's, uh, there's nothing special about to sugar. to argue about whether the cause of that weight is too much fat or too much carbohydrate doesn't really make any sense. The point is calories are imbalanced. Um, and it's interesting to me that that point isn't more widely publicized, that the first thing you do if you have symptoms of type 2 diabetes is lose weight. Just as simple as that. doesn't matter what you necessarily eat. You just need to eat less of it. You need less of it. And if eating carbohydrate makes you eat less of it, that's fine. As long as you're losing weight or keeping your weight down or whatever. Um, Now, for many people, this is very difficult to do, and they would rather take drugs. And doctors are not very firm about encouraging people to lose weight because it's so hard for people to lose weight. It's not easy. Do you think that they don't encourage people to lose weight, or do they not encourage people to, you know, do they not really take nutrition into account? Because I have found that there is um, very little kind of nutritional education uh, or importance placed on um, that kind of field of study within the medical community Yeah, that's an old story, too. When I taught at a medical school from 1976 to 1986, uh, I ran a nutrition education program, and this was already 20 years into a huge fuss about trying to increase the amount of nutrition that's taught to medical students. It's never changed. So you think there's enough uh, nutritional education for medical students? There isn't any. Most don't get any. Most don't get uh, any any education. They don't get any nu- nutrition education. Oh. They get none. Right. Um, it's you know nutrition is complicated, and it would take a great deal of effort, time, um, and instruction in order to turn medical students into people who really understood how nutrition worked. There's no time for that. They've got other things to do. Um, so it's largely ignored, um, even in you know big outline, even though 40% of the American population is overweight. Um, doctors really aren't trained or able to do the kind of counseling that's necessary uh, to help people with that if, you know, at best they can have dietitians working with them who can advise people, but not that many um, are able to do that. Uh, I mean, it's a on, it's a, it's been a problem now for 50 years, 60 years. Right. right. Yeah. A long time. That's that's a long time. Um, Okay, so shifting to kind of more of a policy focus, what do you think the government's role is in in pushing people to, you know, eat a certain way, right? Maybe and maybe that is certainly to certainly to eat more vegetables, which is seems to be a bit a constant challenge. Um, Yeah, what's the role of regulation in this? Well. 
you know, I think the government has a role in promoting a healthy citizenry. Um, Not everybody would agree with that, but I see that as a government role um, to help the public choose healthier diets so you have healthier people who can work better, who don't cost the healthcare system as much. I mean, there are lots and lots of reasons for promoting health in a population, and the government could do that if you just pick fruits and vegetables as a you know, as a place to start, Mm -hmm. the government could make it easier for farmers to grow and distribute fruits and vegetables. It could make the price of fruits and vegetables more convenient for consumers to buy and easier for consumers to buy. I mean, there's just loads and loads of ways in which um, government actions could promote fruit and vegetable consumption. Those ways just aren't done. There's no political will to do that, largely because of the politics. Fruit and vegetable growers are divided. Uh, They're not unified. Well, you know, a cow is a cow. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The beef industry is totally unified. Uh, It wants to promote beef consumption. And they're beef cattle grown in every state. Every state has two senators. Uh, They're a really very powerful political force. Mm -hmm. But the growers of broccoli, carrots, green beans, lentils, don't necessarily see themselves as part of the same team. They see themselves as competitors. Certainly the growers of peaches and apples see themselves as competitors. And so there isn't a unified political force around fruits and vegetables. Attempts to create a unified political force have not been very effective. But why is that? I mean, you would think that, I mean, they could band together as a general, as even a a a broad category. Well, because they view themselves as competitors. They don't view themselves as part of the same thing. If you buy peaches, you're not going to buy apples. That's competition. Hmm. Okay. But I mean, and, but you don't have that amongst, do you have that kind of infighting between the beef and the poultry industry or? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sure. But the beef industry is uh, united and huge in a way that vegetable growers are not. Vegetable growers are usually smaller. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, they don't have as country. much money. They don't have as much power, and they don't have as much political clout. Um, so that's made it very difficult. And then public health campaigns, even the best ones, the five a day for public health campaign in California, which I thought was brilliant, um, in the early 1990s, it increased the um, it increased purchases of fruits and vegetables in the state, a state that grows a lot of them, um, by a measurable amount. But as soon as the advertising campaign stopped, it reverted. So that was the the Strive for Five campaign? It was called Five a Day for Better Health at the time. Okay, okay. There have been other versions of it. Um, And it was uh, was a California state program. It was very well evaluated. Uh, A lot is known about how it worked. And it worked, but it only worked as long as the campaign was active. And as soon as the ad stopped, it was over. 
Well, so I guess I guess marketing works. <laughs> marketing works. Of course marketing works. Yeah. But who's going to pay for it? Right. For that. And the growers of fruits and vegetables can't. They don't have that kind of money. Yeah. Um, and they don't have a industry-wide checkoff program. Oh, and, oh, and we're not going to talk about checkoff <laughs> programs because they're complicated. But these are government managed industry uh, generic marketing campaigns, the organic industry just got one. Why don't fruits and vegetables have one, though? I mean, is there an easy one? Because they view themselves as a competitor. Okay, so it all all comes back to that? I mean, that that affects... it comes back to that. It keeps coming back to that. They don't view themselves as part of a unified... Um, uh, industry. Yeah. They're not unified. And so They're to get broccoli to... growers or artichoke growers or um, bean growers or whatever. So to get that kind of, you know, um, that foothold to get like a, you know, money for a check hold program, they have to essentially like lobby uh, the agency to be able to. Well, first of all, they have to be unified, and they're okay. not. Okay. So that's the starting position. They're not unified. Is there is what is a what is? Can you give me an example of a policy regulation that has come about um, that has kind of um, pushed people towards been effective in, in pushing people towards um, a, you know a more a healthier way of eating? Well, I think any of the advertising campaigns that the um, marketing, you know, that that are done for marketing, I mean, one of the great things that sells fruits and vegetables is all the advertising about antioxidants. Yeah. That's a marketing camp. It doesn't have much to do with health, but it um, <laughs> it has a great deal to do with you know if you put if you put advert if you put antioxidants on a cereal box, people will buy that sugary cereal because I think it's healthier. But isn't that kind of part of the problem, these sort of, these claims that maybe don't have a lot of, sure, certain fruits and vegetables have a lot of antioxidants, but people just kind of take hold of these like vague ideas. They don't really know. Yeah. Well, those are superfoods. The whole business is about superfoods. Well, that sells fruits and vegetables. That's great. But if you're going to do sensible dietary advice and follow a sensible diet, you want to be eating a variety of fruits and vegetables. It really doesn't matter which ones. So you think it's just helpful to kind of get people in the door to thinking about it? You just want to, you know, have salads with lots of different fruits and vegetables in them or vegetables in them or nuts or whatever you're putting in your salad. Those are great ways to eat, and you want to encourage people to do that, especially, you know, you can make some really delicious salads. Uh, That's an easy way to do it. One way that, um, you know, people try to, uh, everybody wants this to be easy, and it's not necessarily, is the whole business of vegetable smoothies or something like that. Yeah. But you really don't get the same benefit. Why is that? Cause well, because you, you don't get, get all the fiber. Yeah, because you're drinking it and you're not yeah. chewing it? Yeah, or? yeah. yeah. Oh. And, and, you're, and it's, um, you're getting the calories, which in vegetables is not such a big issue. In fruits, it's a big issue. Because of the sugar. Because of the sugar and yeah. fruits. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to eat an orange. It's quite another to eat, drink orange juice, which is four oranges. Um, so what can, you know, I do as, you know, just one person to try and um, encourage or, you know, trying to, like, support, I guess, the vegetable industry to have a louder voice and, and um, to kind of maybe get some of these marketing dollars and make a big change uh, within the industry and how people eat? 
Well, I'm not sure what one person can do here other than voting with your fork. Mm -hmm. Um, Every time you make a purchase of a food, you're voting for the kind of food system that you want. Um, You want to encourage farmers who are selling to farmers markets. You go shop at farmers markets. That's that's what individuals can do. Individuals can also join groups Mm -hmm. that are lobbying. Food Policy Action is a group in Washington that's trying to promote healthier diets and government support for healthier diets. I don't know how well that's going to work in this administration, but <laughs> it's great to get the organization started. Yeah. Um, I'm greatly in favor of joining organizations that are working on these issues um, because there's power in numbers. Right. And legislators will listen to numbers of people. They won't listen to one person very well. But 10 is really impressive to a legislator because they don't get 10 people coming in all that often. Right. Okay, so one, one final word. Um, the, the best diet, dietary advice. Here we go. Eat more, eat, eat more eat vegetables. Your veggies. <laughs> but it's so simple. People want something yeah, more complicated. I think, I think diets are really simple. Yeah. You know, you eat, you eat your fruits and vegetables. You don't eat too much. There you go. And don't eat too much junk food. Pretty, pretty straightforward. It's very straightforward. <laughs> Eating less and moving more works every time. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I really thank you so much, Marion, for coming on the show today. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> okay. For more from Marion, she blogs daily or almost daily at foodpolitics.com. And her Twitter account is at Marion Nessel. Um, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. I also want to thank our new show intern, Hannah, as well as um, our engineer, Vita Hirsch. Show music is by Tim Archer, and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Um, And if you like what you hear, let us know in the comments section but only if you like what you hear. (laughs) Okay, just kidding. Um, Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.